Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hello and welcome to the Red Box Politics Podcast in the Times. I'm Matt Chorley. I hope you had a completely politics-free Christmas. But we're back and we're going to take a look at what we think might happen in 2020 because we all know that making political predictions makes a lot of sense. I'm delighted to be joined in the studio by a lovely panel to end 2019 with Francis Elliott, the political editor of the Times, Deputy Political Editor Steve Swinford and Defence Editor Lucy Fisher. Welcome to you all. Hello, Matt. Did you all have a good Christmas? Superb. Yeah, I know. It was... uh... It was beautifully politics-free. Thank you. Very much. Acting, acting beautifully. That right. So let's start. Let's start with the obvious. We'll, we'll sort of break things up in chunks. But let's start with the obvious. Let's start with the government. This new uh, phenomenon of a uh, majority government. What are they going to do with the new year, Francis? They are going to have a pointless row about deck chairs on the deck. So they, they uh, is there going to be a department for economic growth or a department for human capital or robotics or or something else that Dominic Cummings read in an interesting <laughs> Austrian psychological journal over Christmas. Uh, and they're going to have a furious row about it and draw up uh, a lot of whiteboards and then probably do about nothing at all and reappoint most of the people that are currently in the cabinet after having ruined their Christmas and New Year, which is, 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 is an early down payment on delivering for the British people, let's face it. It is a slightly weird phenomenon that having won a majority government that those in the cabinet are just mm. have been told you've got to wait two months to find yes. out if you're going to keep your job. A working majority, remember that, but mostly a sweating majority and a kind of pliant majority is the truth of the matter. Yeah. yeah. What about you, Steve? What do you think is going to happen early in the year? I, th- I think we just should all spare a thought for the misery of the Cabinet over this <laughs> festive season as they've sat there waiting with the stay of execution whether they'll keep their job. And I, I actually genuinely mean that. They're all really, really worried. You speak to any I'm of them. I'm not sure the nation is going to be uh, crying, <laughs> uh, raising a toast to Jacob Rees-Mogg on New Year's Eve, worried for him and his job security. Yeah, so that, that is a fair point, Matt. Um, but if, if you are a member of the Cabinet, that you know that in this election Boris won it on his own steam there was no number two there was no no one else he won it he will do what he wants with this reshuffle he will promote the people he sees as talented people like rishi sunak a dead certs for promotion and there are a lot of cabinet ministers who are worried they are going to fall through the gaps and out of the cabinet which is an unpleasant situation to be in for ambitious ministers of which there are many what about you lucy how do you think it pans out in the first part of the year well um as well as being interested in Dominic Cummings' move fast and break things uh, methods to the white wall machinery that we're all sort of expecting next year, 
I'm really interested in where he goes sartorially uh, next. You know, <laughs> we've seen yeah, you know, we've seen him do crumpled. We've seen him do untucked. We obviously saw him trolling the photographers on uh, the night of the election with an inside out T-shirt. I'm wondering if he's going to go to sort of egg down the front next, um, <laughs> a directional look for 2020. Just or completely nude, just walking up down the street. <laughs> well, <laughs> that would also be quite a statement. <laughs> he did put a suit on once, didn't he? When he went where when Boris Johnson was going to see Leo. Radka. You're right, at he the, did. At the um, Colleen Rooney wedding venue in the Wirral. Yes, uh, he did put And all the aides knew that it was serious because Dom had put a suit Dom on. Dom put a suit on. That's yeah. how worried they were. Yeah. It wasn't going totally according to plan. Yes. How important is Dominic Cummings? Does it get overblown because he's an interesting character and he's got, you know, more people interested in politics know who he is than who the Justice Secretary is or the, uh, I don't know, the International Development Secretary? Is he as influential as people think? It's a vote leave government. And he was the director of Vote Leave. So in that sense, you know, he, he owns a lot of the political and intellectual c kind of capital of, of this government. But Johnson is his own man. He doesn't like sharing a stage with anyone. Um, the dynamic between them will condition the entire functionality of the government. And if it breaks down, it will be ugly. And we saw before with Steve Hilton and David Cameron... Hilton was a similarly kind of, um, you know, iconoclastic figure, uh, determined to, to change the culture of Whitehall. And Whitehall also won. couldn't get dressed properly. Walked also, around down also, the street with no shoes on and shorts. <laughs> now, you know, uh, Cummings is, I think, smarter and more ruthless than Hilton was. Look, how serious is he? Well, we're about to find out, aren't we? Steve, how different is it for Dominic Cummings? Because he's not running a campaign anymore, even actually the first few months in... Danish, it was essentially a campaign. It was a campaign to get Brexit through and to then uh, prepare for the election. But running a government is a very different thing, isn't it, to running a campaign? It, it is, but I'm not sure they see it like that. They still think they're in campaign mode. They are absolutely... They have a plan and they're going to ruthlessly carry it out. And one of the slightly dispiriting things that we were talking about in the office the other day was the fact that next year could feel strikingly similar to this year we've once again got a new cliff edge December 2020, we've got to get Brexit done by then, as we get closer to that there'll be worries about deal or no deal will be on the table again, it wouldn't surprise me if they start ramping up no deal preparations so we could be in for a strangely parallel universe where everyone starts to start stockpiling beans and thinking about, <laughs> <laughs> and thinking about well, you know, the prospect of a no deal Brexit again are, are you suggesting that when Boris Johnson said during the campaign that after January he would be able to stop talking about Brexit, that might not have been totally true I think that is possibly an untruth <laughs> yes we are all going to be talking about Brexit Adam but on, on the Cummings point one of the things that strikes me is that cabinet ministers are afraid of him some of them they're worried about what he's going to do to them when you talk to them and what they all want regardless of whether they're afraid of him or not they all want to know what he's saying about them they all want to know have you has he said anything about me has you know the director of communications Lee Kane said anything about me and never it strikes me in a long time this is a a very subordinate cabinet mm. compared to what we are used to. Yeah. Um, well, not compared to what we're used to. We're used to a fractious cabinet, but this is one where everyone is afraid of number 10 and the number 10 operation, yeah. which we haven't seen for quite a long time. And actually the contrast of Theresa May's cabinet is so stark, because by the end... Well, we saw it just briefly with Fiona Hill and, and yeah, Timothy at the beginning. in the very early days. But, I mean, I, you know, I, 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 I arrived in the lobby in 1998, so not quite at the beginning of the New Labour Imperium. But, you know... People forget how powerful Alistair Campbell was uh, in that setup, and you feel the same about this lot. 
you know, there are, you know, it's a court. It's going to be a court. It'll be court politics. Steve, you say they've got a plan. What is the plan? Because there's a difference between let's have a fight with the BBC, let's have a fight with the MOD. What, what long? What is the long-term vision? Because actually, from you don't get that from Boris Johnson. It's just sort of we want we want some more nurses and some more police and some more trains or whatever. What is the is there a strategic vision that he wants that Britain to be different by? So it's a two-strand plan. So if you, in Boris's own words, I want we will be able to secure a fabulous trade deal by the end of the year with the European Union. We will leave on those terms. Now, that will collide with reality. There are real concerns in government that what we'll actually end up in with is some kind of bare bones trade deal, uh, which doesn't have close alignment to the EU that could damage the economy. So that is one area of where his vision will come into conflict with reality. And domestically, his his gambit is going to be all about levelling up. It's all about levelling up the north and the south and by the sounds of it there is 100 billion pounds worth of of capital spending that they've committed they've committed 22 billion of that so you've got 75 billion odd pounds of capital spending that they are going to pour into the north and they they will make good on that i think and they will spend a lot of money on that and they are very very committed to leveling up and trying to bridge the gap between the north and the south Lucy, I mentioned the going to war with defence, if that's not right. Just explain the story that you had before Christmas about what Dominic Cummings is planning to do with defence. Well, he's going to make the overhaul of Ministry of Defence procurement a real priority for 2020. And I think a lot of people think that this is long overdue. There's a huge amount of um, waste in the department. Um, there's a sense that civil servants down at uh, Abbey Wood near Bristol who take care of the contracting lack the commercial expertise and leaves the Ministry of Defence um, having rings run around, around it by the defence companies. It's all slightly strange in defence. It's not normal market conditions because, you know, we're looking at developing often sovereign capabilities whereby you've got, you know, companies that have only one customer, the MOD, and the MOD can only re- really rely on the one supplier. So it, it's, a, it's a strange situation. But I think we're going to see a, a, a serious shake-up of that and related to that, we all know that Dominic Cummings is obsessed with science and technology, research and development, and thinks that the UK should um, look to US funding models. DARPA is something he talks about, the US scientific network that claimed uh, credit for an early version of the internet and for inventions like GPS. And so I think that could be quite interesting if we see the UK really driving into areas like space, quantum computing, AI. Um, that, that, is, that is somewhere where, where we, where we should be. That sound like a Dominic Cummings blog. Trust me, I spent a lot of time making through said blogs, and uh, And that's where we're going. What about Boris Johnson and his worldview on defence? And could you imagine a time when he does deploy troops? I mean, you know, there's an argument saying, well, if we're not no longer going to be a country that deploys troops an awful lot, then why are we spending so much money on? defence in the first place. What's your sense of him in the way he sees Britain's place in the world? Well, I think it remains quite unclear. And I, I think, you know, we can see from the fact that he has um, appointed um, John Bew, um, a professor in foreign policy and history, to kind of answer that essay question, what is Britain's place in the world after Brexit, that he's still kind of fleshing it out. I think we know that Boris Johnson is, you know, broadly an Atlanticist. I think we will see um, increasingly, perhaps, the, um, the army used... Um, in a more strategic way abroad. There's a, there's a big movement at the moment to create um, sharper teams that you can sort of uh, implement in places, particularly in Africa, where they can carry out training and peacekeeping. A good example is in Mali next year. We've got you know small numbers, 250 personnel going out there to be involved in UN peacekeeping. But I think we'll see more of that because there's a great deal of concern about 
the influence of China in Africa, concerns about, you know, a very young population, lack of security, you know, very fragile economies, all of which could lead to, you know, a much bigger migration crisis, uh, mm-hmm. crisis in the decade ahead. So I think I think strategic deployment of, of personnel in, in Africa is something we're going to see more of. And what other parts of the world should we be thinking about? Because Steve Francis and I spent a whole time in Westminster obsessing about what Dominic Cummings is up to. So what, and we've been talking about Brexit for so long that the, the sort of the eyes have come down. You know, what, what else is going on in the world that we should be worried about? Well, I think certainly with the NATO being riven by internal struggles at the moment, you know, uh, the ambivalence of President Trump, um, Macron's criticism of it kind of lacking uh, sort of strategic focus, President Erdogan seeming to pivot towards Russia. I think that there has been um, fledgling movements by the UK to try and... Um, entrench clubs within the club. I think we, we were very much strengthening uh, some of our sort of defence uh, relationship with the, sort of the Nordic countries. Also outside the club, there's been a big move to do more with Japan. I think, you know, under Boris Johnson, we could see sort of strengthened links with Australia. You know, an interesting question about countries like Saudi Arabia after the Khashoggi incident. Obviously, Saudi suffered a huge um, catastrophe in, in, on, on the world stage when that uh, emerged, but I think obviously the UK wants to build on its strategic influence in the Middle East, particularly while its relations with Iran seem very febrile. Francis, one thing that Boris Johnson has managed to do, it seems, is tame Donald Trump. He managed to get him to come to the UK, and he didn't interfere with the election. Yes, he just tweeted great news after the election. They had yeah. a phone call over and a very stripped down and a very sort of tame down readout. Read yeah. God me. knows what the actual real conversation was. <laughs> Quite amazing. I thought that would be a great. Anyway, mm. you did. In fact, you did once get. One yes, day, Lucy got an amazing. Yeah. Was that one of the first Theresa May. It, calls it was his first contact. phone call with Theresa May, and it was just extraordinary. He sort of said, "You know, my my mother loved the Queen, and um, that that was all pleasant." But he he ended it by saying to Theresa May. You know, if you're ever over here, do do come swing by the White House. <laughs> no sort of uh, understanding of the months of preparation that go into these um, these these visits. Yeah, people yeah. who people who were on those calls said they were absolutely extraordinary. But yes, the wider point is he has tamed Trump. I mean, obviously we are going to go into proper U.S. trade talks now. Some of those tricky trade-offs uh, about food standards and agriculture access and pharmaceuticals. You know. Notably, not you know really taken off the table. Um, although I don't quite know where we ended up with that, but you know there will be controversial elements, as there are to any trade deal, you know. And it, we're running into um, U.S. presidential election season. What does Biden or whoever the Democratic nominee make of what's happening in the U.K.? I well, mean, we've already had Biden on on the on on using the defeat of Corbyn to warn, you know, potential supporters of Warren and, and Sanders not to go there. So, the, you know, there's endless, there's always a good story about the interplay of US political cycle and the British political cycle. And for once, you know, we are the kind of stable element in that dynamic. Interesting thing on the international stage is that you, you will have Johnson going to these summits as as quite as a powerful figure, you know, as an interesting, powerful figure in charge of a big majority, having delivered uh, at least the first stage of Brexit and therefore being an attractive person to want to speak to whoever you are, you know, because you want to kind of sell into Britain. And you may think that Britain has been vulnerable and on the table, or you may think that there's a great thing there. But, you know, I, I, I see our kind of international standing in the short term 
having a pretty much bit of an uptick next year. I think that'll be. Which you is know, quite extraordinary when it, when he was foreign secretary and people he was would a, say he, a you know, he couldn't go anywhere in Europe. Well, I was just from thinking about when this was talking about Turkey. I mean, we, he did actually call Erdogan a onanist in his own uh, word. Uh, or not well, not he didn't use that word, but he used it, that a um, word divided with anchor. <laughs> The, the very same. <laughs> so, you know, uh, that'll be the interesting kind of first time for the, their joint presser. Do you still think that the president of Turkey is uh, an onanist, Mr Johnson? Johnson? Can't wait to hear you, you, you ask you, that. You <laughs> in the front row. No, you must go. You must go to the press conference. But, but even when he was, a, even though he was uh, seen as a buffoon, particularly in the diplomatic community, people nonetheless wanted to meet him. I sort of, you know, yeah, yeah. kind of, you know, foreign ministers coming to town, that he was the star ticket. And given that loads of other countries have faced the same forces in their electorate that he seems to have managed to capture, then they'll probably be looking to him as well to see what happens. Let's move on and let's talk about the Labour Party and what is left of it. What do we think needs to happen in the Labour Party in 2020, Steve? So if you talk to the Tories on this about why they won the election and you talk to them about their very simple slogan, get Brexit done. So Levido's argument on that slogan is... Just explain who Levido is. So Isaac Levido is the Australian who masterminded the Conservative Party's election victory. And that slogan was widely derided, but it did two things. It first of all said for people that wanted to get Brexit done, let's get it done. And then it appealed to people who were frustrated and may not have wanted Brexit in the first place. And it also said to them, let's get Brexit done. Now, where was the comparable slogan or purpose for Labour during that election? There wasn't one. There, were, there was a, a massive like, like vacuum at the heart of their campaign in terms of what they were doing and what they were about on Brexit. So top of the bill for any Labour candidate will be, what is your Brexit position? And interestingly, with the front runners, we still don't know what long Bailey's Brexit position is. Is she going to be neutral? Is she going to resurrect the honest Brexit? What is, is she actually going to embrace it and go for a closer deal? Where are they going to fit on the Brexit isn't, spectrum? Isn't actually the beauty, if there is a beauty to the position that Labour are now in, is they don't need to have one. They, the, by the time the new leader is elected, we will have left the EU officially. The deal, by the, by the time they get even close to an election, the deal will have been done by Boris Johnson. And they'll hope to get on and talk about other stuff. But they'll need to say that as Labour leader, this is the kind of Brexit I will fight for. Because Brexit isn't over. We've got the, you know, they're going to have to thrash out the future relationship. And logically, the opposition would play a key role in that, in holding the government to account for the type of Brexit they want. And we haven't really heard that yet. And that will start to come out. As There's a lot of focus on, you know, we've forgotten our Labour hand, heartlands, all of that. But the type of Brexit that different candidates want is going to be key to this yeah i mean the interplay between well the labor are never going to win the next election by saying oh that was brilliant that brexit you know oh <laughs> god thank god we're out you know, they can only win if they can only even get close to winning if a majority of people think that the brexit deal the outcome the brexit outcome has been poor uh and you know one of the great unknowns as we go into this year is the extent to which Johnson's new electoral coalition inhibits him from uh, securing the sort of rights to diverge that he wants. You know, boldly, you know, is he prepared to sacrifice tens of thousands of jobs in Midlands manufacturing and, you know, northeast manufacturing in order to uh, chase the potential for regulatory freedom in emerging 
industries like AI or data or whatever it is that they they, they, they think that the 21st century sort of late 21st century kind of economy is going to be at and you know um, that's a massive gamble uh, and if he gets it wrong Labour sweep up if he gets it right kind of doesn't matter what they say they're they're never you know they, they, they're coming back I mean they're probably not coming back in 20, 24 25 anyway but they're not even going to come close so you have to have a Brexit song to sing but if I was kind of the next Labour leader I'd just say you know we need a high alignment deal which is the Tories didn't want to fight the election after Brexit because then they knew that the, the election would be between a high alignment or a low alignment and they were not confident of making that case to the electorate and I suppose if the if the Labour Party can move on from whether or not it's in favour of leave or remain to just well we don't like that version of Brexit that's mm. a much better position for them to yeah. fight in yeah, it unwinds almost immediately. I mean, I think that. I mean, I think obviously they're in a terrible place at the moment, but I think their position recovers quite quickly. You know, the, the, some of the sort of deeper fundamental issues about. I mean, I think there's always a sort of overcorrection of the market. I mean, Labour were some of their policies were popular, right? Let's not forget that. I mean, people were kind of quite a significant number of people were up for nationalising five industries, or at least three of those. Broadband was a, was was didn't poll so well, but you know, water nationalisation. Was, was very popular and and I think that the that the whole security of work and how to balance you know and and low pay and the kind of long tail of low pay effects and cost of living more generally you know we, we still haven't completely recovered to pre-crash levels of household income and and an economic kind of uh, resilience in this country and and people you know people are work feel that they're working harder for and they are they're working harder that for longer hours for less money and uh against an economy which is bound to be disrupted to some extent in the short term that is going to feel rocky for this conservative government in the short term now you know they've got plenty of time to pull it round but you know i i would imagine that the council elections in even from May might might look radically different. Well, because they'll have a new, just had a new leader. In yeah, place. they'll have a new leader. You know, Brexit will have been done, but we'll be in the right in the middle of a tedious row about you know this, that, and the other events, events, events. Yeah, and you know, I can imagine them getting quite a lift quite quickly. Looking, I mean, it's extraordinary if you look at the the polling that YouGov did on how people voted and why they voted. The fact that Tories have overtaken Labour comfortably amongst the lowest uh, lowest working class amongst the lowest incomes amongst the least educated the Tories were ahead and that if you went back definitely to the 2015 election that just wasn't the case and it seemed it would be a bold prime minister who immediately sacrificed precisely those people on the altar of Singapore on Thames mm. uh, which is obviously what some of the Brexiteers you know the, the hardline Brexiteers in the Commons before wanted what about the fact that which is a new Labour leader need to basically sort of kill Corbyn or or can they just embrace Corbynism but without a beard? I think he still retains a high level of popularity with the membership, you know, almost 500,000 people. I, I think it would be unwise to completely disown him. But I, I think the flip side of what you were just saying just now about the Conservatives sweeping up, you know, people on the lower end of the socioeconomic spectrum, less educated. For me, one of the really big questions Labour has to grapple with is culturally how does it sort of does it double down on seeking to sweep up metropolitan liberal educated 
voters and hope that the sort of the rise that the that that seepage of 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 culture and liberalism that can spread out from cities into sort of towns around it eventually means that they there will be enough proportion proportionally speaking of the electorate for them to win to get a majority or do they look to kind of move away from some of the woke culture that has yeah. sort of dominated and lots of lots of issues where i think many members of the british public feel sort of uh, sanguine about Labour's position but just don't feel that it's a priority some of the issues they, they, they pick up on like you know the reparations for colonialism and, and sort of all, all sorts of kind of cultural touch touch points In the in the end I suppose it, go, and it goes back to the old echo chamber thing that on polling day the fact that Jeremy Corbyn got the word Labour trending on Twitter was seen as proof that he was about to march through door of number 10 and that just isn't the case you know and all that sort of oh, I've not met anyone who everyone I've spoke I've met anyone who's going to vote Tory I've heard <laughs> definitely around Westminster and possibly even in the building that we're in right now that that sense of there are far more people like the sort of people who just voted Tory in this country than people who spend their time on Twitter arguing about trans rights that's the yeah there's a debate about whether Labour moves right culturally whatever the hell that means but I think what it what I interpret it to mean is that there is a sort of you know trans is a, is a great example of a there's a suite of sort of concerns where I think one way of I've, I've just seen of kind of like distilling the the the, the, the comings offer is love the NHS hang the pedos um, <laughs> and, and that's right I mean you know uh, uh, and the criminal justice will be a kind of the Tories clearly want to make it a fight you know and um, that's where it, that's where it'll feel most uncomfortable I think for Labour because they'll introduce a load of really quite draconian um, yeah stuff that, that Keir Starmer like, might find particularly difficult to swallow uh, and to the extent to which Labour kind of gets sucked into that fight, it, it will. It, it will because you know oppositions do. Oppositions do, but it would be wise, I think, to uh, to not make it a leading offer. Yeah. You see, I mean, one of the questions is: Is there any way that Labour can change its identity again? So I, I remember reporting with Ed Miliband at Labour conference, and it was a massive moment when he said, "I am a socialist." which was, you know, for a Labour leader to redefine themselves as a socialist after Blair years felt like a big moment. Fast forward to Corbyn (laughs) and we're now universal socialists in the Labour Party, etc. So whoever leads the Labour Party, how do they define themselves? Will they be someone who is nakedly a socialist or could someone like Keir Starmer, who may have a slightly different position on how he sees himself and his centrist approach... um, take the reins. But isn't also part of the problem that the Labour Party will consume itself with exactly that debate for 12 months about whether or not the leader describes themselves as a socialist while Boris Johnson is promising people more doctors and policemen and, and buses and whatever. Chucking money at chucking the money and, and, yeah, exactly. and all those seats. Yeah. And it, most people don't spend their time deciding whether or not they are in or not a socialist. That's the that's the fundamental. Thing is, Labour, you know, has a you know, as Francis said, a huge uphill battle to get you know anywhere near being in with a chance of winning in 2024. So in a sense, they've got time. They need to think of this as a two-term project. Right now, they need a grown-up, someone who can help rebuild, like, and someone who who understands they probably won't win. Looking then moving on to someone who's the sort of the star candidate to to go forward. I dread to sort of bring it up, but is there any space for a new political force? Because it. What has happened to Labour in the North is what happened to them in Scotland before. And they said, oh, it's a one-off thing, they'll come back. And they haven't come back in Scotland and the SNP have you know, got complete control there. Is, is the Labour Party just gradually being eroded everywhere to the point there is no... I mean, if, if people are no longer defining themselves by the work that they do and being a member of a trade union, is it 100 years on, is there any point to the Labour Party at all? 
Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> Email. Oh, oh, oh. <laughs> There's definitely a point to the Labour Party, right? So, as Francis said, in that manifesto, there were lots of things about the cost of living. And as the Tories point out to me, lots of things in that manifesto, we're going to have them. We're going to take them, we're going to yeah. do them. We, we didn't say anything about it at the time. We're going to be doing them. And, and the importance of scrutinising this government as it goes through Brexit, right? If, if Boris gets this wrong, if he takes the gamble on the kind of deal he wants and it goes spectacularly wrong and we're suddenly the economy's tanking and there's not as much money in people's pockets, you need a viable opposition, which Labour should be by that stage, to say, here's an alternative mm. and this is why you're doing it wrong and this is where you're going wrong. And if, if, if Labour can't do that, then we're in massive trouble as a mm. democracy because the Lib Dems aren't filling that space, you know. Mm. <laughs> there isn't a, a, a space for a new political party. And, and finally, politics moves so fast these days. It was only earlier in 2019 that we were having conversations about whether or not the Tory party was finished. They came fourth in the European Parliament elections and the Brexit party was on the march and Theresa May left but a husk of a party. And now they've just won the biggest majority since 1987. And that's the thing that Boris did, though. He said... I'm a new party, I'm a new Prime Minister, this is a new <laughs> government, I am not Theresa May and this is not the Conservatives you knew. That's how he pitched it and, yeah. and it worked. It worked. So on a more prosaic note, it's just the impossibility of g- gathering all the voter data that c- can lead a candidate to win on the ground in a first-past-the-post yeah. parliamentary democracy and to see really big names like Chukar Amuno and Luciana Berger, you know, at least well, I suppose they had the, the Lib Dem data but perhaps that doesn't that doesn't hold but i'm thinking of the other parties and movements that have grown up and just fizzled out without a yeah that's yeah spark. just two words change uk change uk um, so what so after the break we'll talk about all the other parties and all the other stuff that might be going on we'll be back after this short break Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Life is full of what ifs. Some awesome, like what if AI could fold your laundry? And some, well, less awesome, like what if you have unexpected medical costs? United Healthcare can help get you covered with Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans. They supplement your primary plan to help you manage out of pocket costs no deductibles, no enrollment periods, and especially no more what ifs. Visit uh1.com to find the Health Protector Guard plan for you. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Welcome back to the Red Box Podcast with me, Matt Cholley, joining the studio by Lucy Fisher, Steve Swinford and Francis Elliott. We're talking about what we think might happen 
in 2020. So I just thought for the last few minutes we should just discuss everyone else uh, and what is left of them. We've done the Tories, we've done Labour. The Lib Dems. The Lib Dem fight back eludes them yet still. They're down again. They're down to 11 MPs. They don't even have a leader. Joe Swinson having lost a seat. I asked earlier what's the point of the Labour Party? What is the point of the Lib Dems? It's hard to see what they stand for. Daisy Cooper. I don't know. This is, a, is is this a name to play with? I, I mean, she is the uh, she is the newly elected MP for St Albans, who, who with no small chutzpah, has said she's going to throw her hat in the ring, has made a sort of early pitch for a kind of civil liberties agenda. Don't see the country crying out for a, you know civil libertarian defence, but there is a risk they just think sort of what what is the what is the space that no one is filling without asking themselves the question why is no one filling this space? Yeah, exactly. It was very um it's quite sad in a way. Like the other day there was a pic they did their official picture in Parliament and it was this tiny clutch of MPs just <laughs> stood next to the giant Christmas tree in Westminster <laughs> in Parliament and it just this this desolate image of a party that has literally I mean, it's gone as a political force. They had to bring in Sal Brinton, who isn't even an MP, just to bump up the numbers <laughs> in, the, in the family photo. I think the, the, the best idea they've, they've had in years is the, is the Glee Club at conference, you know, the sort of comedy lyrics to well-known <laughs> tunes. That's the only space they really, they really fill. Do they ultimately just have to sit and wait for Boris Johnson to balls this up? And in lots of parts of the country, and they hoped it was going to happen this time, and then the Brexit party not standing actually cost... I think they are seconded them. in an astonishing yeah. number, and of they seats. did increase their vote share in more seats. So you than can else. see them. You can see them catching a wave if Tory Remainers start to want to protest. So they'll they will do what they always do, which is that they will act as a sort of buffer for posh Tories who may actually kind of have to um, pay some more of their, you know, who may have to take some short term pain to, you know, they might see their pension tax relief go or bits of other sort of stealth taxes here and there so i can see them doing okay in future local elections especially if brexit isn't a wild success and they'll act as that kind of you know a safety valve but then every time we get to an election the squeeze happens yeah. and and they have they have they have they have not really ever broken that hoodoo even in the 2010 when they got in coalition they just kind of got lucky they thought that 2019 was their absolute golden ticket and it turned out to be anything but i think part of the problem is that they do best when the two alternative party leaders are sort of fine mm. if there's an extreme option so in 2010 the country was sort you know nobody really objected to gordon brown you know david cameron's poll waves were pretty good as well by the time we got 2015 the bogeyman was alex salmon mm. and it was all about stopping Alex Salmon pulling the strings. In 2017, the bogeyman became... Theresa May. Theresa May. <laughs> Not quite, no. Um, but do you know what I mean? They get yeah. squeezed when they, they, things become more polarised. And if actually everyone's sort of nice and OK, but it's all right if you've got a nice local Lib Dem MP. They will find it difficult also to resist becoming the we should just rejoin the EU party. If the party of revoke was tough, the party of return is going to be... Yeah, but, I mean, there will eventually be such a movement and they, they, they may... You know, and they're always going to occupy that position that is closest to that of the three parties. Yeah, I think it's a terrible cul-de-sac. What about the other parties? Let's talk about Nigel Farage. Have we finally seen the back of Nigel Farage? <sighs> I think we know, have. I... Dave, come to go. Spend a lot of time in the US. That's the suggestion he's got. Following out there. But he's, he's, now, this is a question: Does Donald Trump want to be associated with the big a fat loser? loser? 
Don, Donald yeah, Trump is very loyal to his friends, right? And he sees is Nigel, Nigel Farage, Farage really a friend, or is he just a useful? I, I genuinely think he is. I gen- oh, okay. like. I remember that extraordinary time when the first person he saw after <laughs> was, was Nigel Farage. I was, I was down in the states <laughs> shortly after being elected, and Nigel Farage rocks up and gets in to Trump Tower and see. You know that wasn't an accident. He is loyal to the people, and he sees. Farage as Mr Brexit not, not yeah, in the same way isn't Boris do. now Mr Brexit you could have two Mr Brexits <laughs> I think uh, his his currency has gone down Nigel Farage I think he he pipped in there the opportune moment when Trump was first elected and everyone was still sort of reeling from the shock of that and I think he he has been overtaken and I was astonished not to see you know in previous elections he's always been out there on the front line saying why am I not being invited to TV debates why is you know UKIP as it was then you know not getting more more coverage and he just seemed a bit lacklustre I sort of felt his heart wasn't in it this time I don't know what mm. you guys feel no 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 well, uh, he'll hold Boris's feet to the fire on the type of oh, that's the sort of nonsense you'll say that's how, the, how is he going to do yeah. that well he'll just make a lot of noise right yeah. and it's it's what he's always done can we talk about what we're looking forward to go on then in this co- <laughs> so what I'm really looking forward to <laughs> is it sleep this year it's well I think there's going to be a momentous debate about things like cheese and Milton Mowbray pork pies um, they're called geographic indicators in the EU have you been right? speaking to Liz Truss exactly <laughs> it's like but, so when you when uh, earlier on when 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 apparently allegedly the Russians leaked some internal department for trade papers it was astonishing the amount of time that trade heavyweights from the US and the UK were spending talking about things like champagne and you know Milton Mowbray pork pies and, and those brands and can we protect them can we not and weirdly that kind of stuff could actually derail a trade deal with the US it's a huge issue equally it could derail a trade deal with the EU. So these kind of strange issues, people are going to suddenly start talking a lot about them, along with chlorinated chicken, along with things that aren't even on people's radar at the moment. Mm-hmm. Should we buy stocks in chlorine? Or, or indeed cheese. <laughs> or indeed cheese. <laughs> if there's one thing that could break up Boris Johnson's coalition is if he upsets people who like pork pies and cheese and champagne. All that, these, that all the cheap American big, imports. Exactly. You know, it's, um, can, I, can I just... I just had a flashback to the, one of my favourite moments of the campaign trial was when Jeremy Corbyn at his last, one of his last campaign events was asked by, um, I think it was Liz Bates, said, you're very unpopular. And he said, I'm a Marmite candidate and Marmite is good for you. (laughs) (laughs) Half the people hate me, but it's, you know, it's quite good to shove it down your throat. Is it good for you? I mean, I I quite like Marmite. It's really salty. I mean, I love Marmite myself. I love Marmite more than I love (laughs) Jeremy Corbyn. I think it's fair to say. I'm not sure the the Venn diagram is completely too much. Go on then, what was your favourite bit of the campaign or your favourite bit of politics in, in 2019, Stu? In, in the whole of 2019 I mean I, I enjoyed the peak Theresa May cabinet when everybody was briefing and everybody <laughs> you, had knives yeah. out and it was it was, was infuriating sitting in the office uh, and just someone would say I wonder what ex-minister's doing oh oh you were sitting on the phone for them. It was like a, it was like a sort of um, telethon. That was a great time. I mean, the, yeah. the, during the election campaign was largely a dispiriting affair. But the one moment it particularly came alive was when a Tory aide called Rob Oxley, who we all know <laughs> and deal with on a daily basis, swore live on air that to Good Morning favorite. Britain with and like it, it was just we were in stitches. It was so funny. And then the prime minister took refuge in a fridge. Yeah, exactly. It and couldn't have been better. So, so one, one, one anecdote. I heard that Dom had said of Rob during that point, Rob, that is the best thing you've done all campaign. <laughs> you should tell them to F off more often. <laughs> um, what about you, Lucy? I just think that moment of seeing the exit poll is just truly draw on the floor. You know, you just know it ushers in 
probably a decade of, of change and a totally new era. That was probably the key moment for me. Well, there we are. And what are we, apart from cheese and pork pies, what are we looking forward to in the new year? Sleep. Sleep. <laughs> no more late night votes. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm looking, <laughs> a bit like Steve, I am looking forward to this country having a kind of proper examination of what it wants to do and be in a context where, you know, it's not endless crisis. So we, we can and we must make some massive decisions. Because no big decision has been made for no. three years. But And now no, they really years. have to be. Yeah. You can't put them off anymore. I say that. <laughs> uh, you know, politics is, is always sort of prevarication. And there'll be variety. Uh, just in what we cover in politics. Variety. It won't all be... Be- uh, it won't all be... be more policy. I mean, I've, policy, personally, exactly. I felt there's just been so much process and so much personality. And the process in particular has always been sort of, you know, one step forward, two step back, pivot two degrees, yeah. one step forward, two steps back. And I'm interested to see actual... Things what, what, happen. Nobody could, Theresa May couldn't announce a big educational reform because you didn't know if her education sector was still going to be in the job by the end of that particular week or whatever. So it's going to it's going to be spectacular. It's going to be a spectacular year of politics. The thing that journalists always enjoy in politics is conflict, and there's going to be an extraordinary amount of conflict with Brussels, with the US over a trade deal internally in the cabinet as it rips itself to pieces and people vie for different positions. It's going to be a great year for journalists, for the nation. That's an open question. <laughs> but a good year for the Red Box podcast as well, which seems like it's good a place to end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So stock up on your champagne and pork pies uh, and brace yourselves for 2020. Thank you for listening throughout 2019. It has been an extraordinary year um, where you've listened in phenomenal numbers. So thank you for that. Uh, my thank you to uh, Lucy, to Steve and to Francis. From me, Matt Chorley, Happy New Year. We'll see you in 2020. Mm-hmm.